This episode of Zero Cafe is made possible by our partners Online Influence Institute, VWO and Content Square. Today I talk with Brian Kugelman, Senior Behavioral Scientist at Alter Spark. Brian started with Behavioral Science and Technology in 1997, applied this at the United Nations for seven years, did a PhD on Trusted Credibility for a year, and then for two years on Behavioral Change Taxonomies. And you may know him from his course on Digital Psychology and Behavioral Design at CXL. In our talk today, there's going to be a lot of science. We're going to talk about behavioral principles, where these theories come from, and how we as zero specialists often apply them in a wrong way. And Brian is going to show us how to better ourselves. In case you missed the previous episodes, last time I spoke with Altina van der Veer about why humanizing data is so important. And you can listen to that episode on www.zero.cafe or in the podcast app you're listening with right now, welcome to season three, episode four. Blast off! <laughs> Blast off! Here we go, uh, Brian. Welcome to the Zero Cafe podcast. And of course, we need to establish your authority. That's, that's where we need to start, right? Why are we listening uh, to you? Uh, so uh, some people might know you from Twitter, uh, your CXL courses, your articles. Uh, but for those who don't, uh, can you please tell us a bit about your background and what you're doing in, uh, in your daily life? Sure. And also, uh, thanks a lot for uh, having me here. You know, this is awesome. Uh, so uh, here's my authority pitch. So um, <laughs> <laughs> for me, I'm a specialist in using behavioral science and psychology, and I temper a little bit with uh, neuroscience. And my shtick is looking at how this operates in a digital mediated environment. So that means in websites and mobile phones and tech. Uh, and actually, my, my background was in social change. So before I got into um, pure, you know, like online uh, change, it was all about changing population level health, um, but using technology for that purpose. And then later on, uh, my career got a little bit more interface focused, so getting more to like UX and the front end design. And um, one thing I could add is I'm not just an academic ivory tower theoretician. Um, I work hands-on. So actually, I worked for many years in tech. I was a network admin at one point in my career. I program at PHP, Python. I build all the technologies. I do all my ads. I work frontline. Um, so I actually do all implementation. So I'm not like, you know, a high-level theoretical person. Well, actually, technically I am. <laughs> and I have the scientific papers to back it. But uh, I, if I don't get my hands dirty, I don't feel like I'm, I'm learning. So I and I make sure I'm up with the latest stuff. My next life will be a developer, actually. How do you go about mixing those two? Is it is it like is it so completely split? You spend two and a half days of the week on theory, and two and a half day a week on practice? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, it can be a little tough. So um, maybe I can, I can tell you about that in my career, because also I, I get approached by a lot of people who want to work in an area sort of similar to where I operate. And, and it's just it's an intersection between, you know, psychology and tech, right? It's, just, it's like an overlap. So so in my career, um, I, I'm a creative person and I have a lot of ideas. So I always push my bosses and I was throwing forward ideas so I could I come somehow get that integration. So, so I always found jobs where I was working in the two. So some jobs were more 
you know, like pure technology, and I was never fully satisfied with those. And then some were like pure behavioral science. So I was working in crime prevention for the federal government of yeah. Canada. And I couldn't get my team to do anything digital. And eventually it was like, eh, you know, this is taking me off. <laughs> pure behavioral science was not fulfilling. And most of my career has been about the, the two. So, so I led a career like this. So that means uh, you work not just with the implementation, but the strategy as well. So the psychology gives you the insight and the strategy and gives you the, uh, you know, the wisdom in how you implement. And the technology is about mastering your medium. So, you know, if, you know, whatever, Jimi Hendrix is a master at playing guitar, you know, Rembrandt's, uh, you know, master at painting. Um, ABBA masters at singing, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. each masters at different crafts. So for me, the, the tech is like, uh, you would have strategic insight with no ability to implement, right? If you only had the tech and if you only had the strategy, it would all be theory with no ability to, uh, you know, implement. Or, so you need, you need both. Yeah. And I think uh, when a lot of people listening to that podcast, uh, theories um, uh, are mentioned quite often. Uh, we often talk about um, uh, it's either B.J. Fogg or Cialdini, of course. Uh, there's this whole list of um, um, uh, behavioral e economics. Um, uh, Kahneman, of course, is what we talk about. Uh, we have this amazing list of uh, a couple of hundred cognitive biases on, on Wikipedia. Um, what's your view on these? How, how do these all um, uh, relate? and 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 um, uh, how do you work with them do you work with them oh yeah yeah absolutely so th those are popular theoretical frameworks and models and so um, uh, the way you work with a theory is you know you have to understand its assumptions and background and what a lot of people don't understand and and they sort of get pushed around like someone who's not really street smart and hasn't been around the block is they tend to buy into some of the dogma um, and a lot of the assumptions. But when you work as an academic in behavioral science, you say, oh, it's just that theory and that theory has these assumptions and it was designed for these applications. And normally it has these uh, principles that are its building blocks. And there's a lot of other backgrounds. So, so you approach them as different frameworks that generally serve a purpose in a different area of applied psychology. So Cialdini uh, developed a system that was for sales psychology. What people don't know about Cialdini is, it is I understand in his doctorate, he sort of went undercover uh, with what we would probably call today very sleazy sales uh, strategies. <laughs> Style and like high pressure telephone sales, like stuff that you might have a moral conundrum with if you're working or you'll have very good defense mechanisms if you don't like cognitive dissonance. Um, and you're crossing some of those ethical lines, but but that's where he did his research and he distilled principles. So so Cialdini developed a system that was basically structured around that one application. But but you would never ever dream of using Cialdini's framework to build a health behavior change app, right? Like it's great for conversion optimization because it you know comes from from studying the psychology of sales, but it did not come from therapy. Right? And then yeah. BJ Fogg's model is like a bit more of a, um, he has a bunch of models, right? So it depends on what, what model. Well, let's say the Fogg model, because that's what most people are, are talking about. So with his uh, easy and ability framework. Um, so 
BJ actually, he's an interesting uh, uh, player in the behavior change space because he, I was actually at the conference, a series of conferences, and I felt like he was playing one on us. So, so BJ was trying to climatize um, a lot of people in the persuasive technology uh, academic community, which is actually a very small community of uh, scientists. Um, and he, I think he tried to get us on behaviorism. Like, I remember when he confessed he was a behaviorist and it was like a crime. He was like coming out and admitting, I'm a behaviorist. So, so he, he really brought behaviorism back into the fold because it was very unpopular. And he distilled um, very basic principles that are required for almost all behavior change. So his framework is a very broad one. So, so basically, I would yeah. say violate BJ Fogg's principles at your peril. It's a general set of principles that apply to most situations. It gets into the core of how like our dopamine circuits and how reinforcement learning operates, right? This is how humans, insects, I believe plants as well, microorganisms, it's like how learning operates, right? Like he's, he's really yeah. core principles and, and his core principles are actually not his. You'll find his core principles in a number of other frameworks. Um, so, but he put them together in a, from a behaviorist perspective. So, so with, um, with his approach, it's sort of like pretty much standard practice. You should always be using it. Cialdini's got like the yeah. set of principles and we could go on. You know, there's a different story for each of the different frameworks. For me, it also feels like, uh, the BJ folks are, are way more, uh, like I said, it's, it's way more basic in, in, in how things function, how uh, organisms function. Because when you look at the Cialdini ones, um, they are um, way more influenced also by um, by social changes. They're, they're not so basic that they're they're not influenced by that. Uh, for example, social proof. Uh, of course, when he was this uh, pretending to be this sleazy sil car salesman <laughs> um, and, and, and doing this uh, maybe in one-on-one in -on -one situation. I mean, his book is from, from 1983, right? There was no online. Uh, but but now when everyone's getting used to this, uh, seeing uh, 500 people uh, reviewing a product very positively uh, probably doesn't have the same effect anymore. Uh, yeah, you don't, so you, you, don't, you don't necessarily believe it anymore. <laughs> there's, there's some skepticism uh, uh, that consumers now have. Yeah, yeah, you can only use a uh, persuasive design strategy for so long before everyone sort of figures out what's going on and then they become street smart. I, I don't know if you uh, do you travel much? Have you been to many uh, Well, not, not, not in the last year, <laughs> uh, but before, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I traveled a lot. I filled up a number of passports um, to the point of having no pages left. And I backpacked for 10 months when I was uh, 23 is when I did it. Yeah. Um, so I, I went to a lot of like uh, places that were like dangerous and new. And I remember the whole thing of being, you know, they call it fresh off the boat. Like when you arrive, people try to exploit you because you don't know the games and the culture, right? And, and all the scammers yeah. are on you. And, and after a while, you get used to uh, dealing with it, right? And, and you know how it works, but you don't know how the tactics operate and how the strategies operate until you've been, been there a while and you're a bit street smart. And I think it's the same with marketing tactics. So if you overdo, um, a persuasive design strategy or behavior change principle. And we could get into, you know, how we even call these things or what we call them. Uh, but if you overdo them uh, with an individual, yeah, they're, they're going to know how it works and that's going to lose its impact. If you 
poorly implement them, like say you you overdo it, like Chaudini's principles are very effective, like just because they they came from like more aggressive sales strategies, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with them. I, I think his principles are very high level and generally applicable. They're just not useful for for everything. But if you overdo his principles, you will generally look like a sleazy hustler. Um, and so <laughs> you have to be a bit tasteful in how you implement. Uh, so it's like uh, they say, what is like, what is a great uh, work of art? It's like a, or sorry, a, a great work of literature is a good story well told, right? So the, the story is like a generic plot narrative and we humans have been saying the same stories so long. We don't get bored. We never get bored of those stories. They're wonderful, but we get bored of how those stories are expressed, and we always want to hear it retold from our generation's perspective. So, 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 how you take that principle and translate it? There's a lot in the implementation. So, so, so you can overdo a principle, and you can overexpose a population to a principle. And here's the dangerous thing: if a principle becomes associated with con artists and scammers, which I think many of the principles. Of psychology that are taught in CRO, um, you know, they get adopted in that way because scammers say, "Hey, that's what all these people are doing it," and and then these things get built into all the templates that are distributed. And so most of the really effective psychology-based principles have been mainstreamed into the design patterns that we all pull from, and then once they get into the hands of sleazy individuals, boom, you now start destroying them. And now, what was a good social norm gets perceived as a threat <laughs> or yeah. as a lie and then good luck <laughs> yeah and i think uh what you mentioned with uh travel that's that's a great way to, the further away you travel from um from where you're based and and what's what's normal to you um yeah the more the more basic you get with uh what works for you and, and you get to to see the world uh in a, in a different way and 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 see you have to revisit all these biases that you have um and 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 figure out if they if they still work actually uh for you i mean a, a simple practical example um is that that's a part of the world uh drives on the left side of the road a part of the world drives on the right side of the road it's not necessarily that one is better than the other but it's just like a default that we've uh chosen uh, to live with and there are there's there are a lot of those and you're, you're probably not aware of most of them at least not all the time and unless you start traveling and then you figure out hey this is the way we do this is not normal <laughs> uh, uh let's 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 i need to refigure refigure re re um um recompose my brain to work in this new situation Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we habituate to things, so we get used to everything around us. And, and when something's very different, uh, we don't know how to interpret, and it really stands out. And uh, when it comes to design, I I think also th this um, this impacts on like marketing and general communications for anyone in CRO. In that, um, yeah. basically, if you're copying what everyone else is doing, and and if there's a popular um, psychology book that has some strategies that says, oh, do this and that, and it's a magic psychological formula for getting higher conversions, right? Once everyone does it, it stops having impact. It's like an arms race, right? So that's now the baseline yeah. and people get used to it. And, yeah. and then, and then your messages start, uh, habituating like crazy yeah. or, and, and the danger is that you, you get, 
you get habituated, uh, you get used to those things really fast. I mean, if, if you move to another country, day one, it might even be scary, but you're probably used to it after a week. And that's and the same uh, um, also true, I think, for uh, as, as a CRO specialist, when working for a company, the first day uh, you might still see all, all, all things wrong. But after a couple of weeks, you get used to, okay, we do this because it's it's easier for the back end. It's easier for <laughs> for uh, for marketing to do it this way because so we do it this way, uh, and that that's why I love doing uh, user research. Actually, sitting next to people or watching people go through a website or using a product because it brings you back in that state. Uh, it's, it's a very similar experience to me than moving to for the first time to a new country and and that first day and then. Oh shit! Uh, that's, that why are we doing this? This is stupid. <laughs> I didn't know, and and people may people see this in a totally different way, and it, it opens your eyes, uh, and see your your own product or uh, uh, website again uh, through someone else's eyes. Oh yeah, I, I'm totally with you. Like we all become blind to our imperfections at some point, yeah. uh, and it's not to look at things from the user's perspective that you can start saying, "Holy crap!" Like I don't. Do, do you ever, I, like I'll sometimes when I have a problem on a page, I'll go and I'll watch a couple of click sessions and see what's going on. And a few times I was like, oh my God, did I design that? Right. You know, someone was on a mobile <laughs> phone and then they reached a certain point in the process. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. Now I know. Right. And you're like, yeah. bingo. Yeah. And you, 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 sometimes you won't even use software in, in ways that are, like you can't conceive of how your users will use your software, right? They will do things in ways that are inconceivable and, and only the user testing and getting in ethnographically behind them and seeing what they do. It's like the, the only way. Yeah, especially, I mean, if you're designing uh, something, you use one of the default assumptions is, oh, okay, it's going to be uh, on, on a website or they're using a browser and this is the only thing they're doing right then, uh, right now. And, and usually that's not the case. They have a couple of browsers open, they're looking on their mobile phone, they're, they're stopping midway to get lunch. And <laughs> Uh, that's usually not, and that's even hard to replicate in, uh, in user studies, of course. Um, but uh, e even without that, it's 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 very uh, eye-opening uh, usually uh, to do that. So I'm wondering. So when you when you start or when you brought in for uh, a, a new project, you have a very strong foundation on uh, in both uh, uh, the, the theoretical uh, uh, part of the behavioral science and and, and the practical part. Uh, when you start, do you start? Uh, I mean, it's, it, I guess it's hard to, to comp completely keep them separate, but do you start thinking about, okay, uh, start thinking about theoretical models and how can we solve that? How can we validate with data? Or do you say, okay, we have this problem. Let's first look at the data and then see uh, if we can find some uh, theory that can help us out here. Oh, I, I always start with reality before I even attempt to uh, throw in anything theoretical. I mean, it also depends on costs as well, because sometimes if you scope out a project, it's like, you know, and, and you agree we're going to use this tool for that problem, then, you know, you sort of agreed to some degree on the model. Um, yeah. All right. Um, and actually, maybe I could back up and introduce uh, something more complex to the equation. So there's a researcher named Tatlock who looked at expert predictions, and he spent many years looking at experts and what they predicted. And Tatlock is probably the uh, brother of Dunning-Kruger. I don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> The parallel to the uh, psychology of naive optimism. So what he looked at is uh, experts who make better and experts who make worse predictions. 
And he said, and this is one of the funny things. So, so the experts who make um, the worst predictions are the ones who are really confident. They sell you all black and white, this is how the world is. And they look at the world from a frame of reference and they come with a, a sort of theoretical model that answers all, all the issues of reality, right? From their perspective, they're one, one, one view um, or one trick pony perspective on reality and how to frame everything. So um, they tend to have pretty crappy predictions, but they get most of the media attention. And when things don't work out, they tend to, I guess, develop skills in rationalizing things. The people who make the good predictions are those who look at the evidence and then play with a bunch of different models and say, well, you know, it's sort of like this, but a bit like that. And, you know, it will probably work out. I'm about 80% sure that this, and, and they, they come with more of these qualifications and, and, and they're more flexible. They tend to have more accurate predictions, um, but the media hates them. And I think those people, and I'm one of those, um, they tend to get, uh, you don't do as well in your, your business for winning client jobs. You're not as strong a speaker because you're willing to look at reality and negotiate and, and be flexible. Uh, so it, it counts against you. And I think the market wants the one trick pony to come with the magic formula. So I am, hard, I am radically against that approach. So I look at the situation and then I come up with a, a, a model that is going to make sense in most cases. When I teach, obviously, I have to, you know, I train people through models, um, but I don't train them to actually take anything off the shelf. I teach them to look at reality and then to compare models. And when you work for many years in behavioral science, you, there's no such thing as we apply Cialdini to everything, which is what a lot of people do. Or, or you mentioned like, you know, hundreds of behavioral economics principles, right? Like there's these crazy lists, which I could get into later, why I think they're completely um, absurd and, and actually have no scientific merit, I believe. And I could get into that, why these over a hundred lists of behavioral science principles are actually largely baseless. Um, but but you, you could come with all these tools and then you can look at all the models, say the health belief model, the theory of reasoned action, the extended parallel process model. You could take BJ Fogg's model. You could take um, the trans theoretical model, the theory of reasoned action to plan behavior. And I could go on, I could keep rattling off frameworks, but what you do is you have to pick the best model for the challenge. And in that, that's not even enough. Now you have to adapt that model because the models require a little bit of calibration. And then what happens when you do that is if you fit a good model to a specific situation and it's really a, a good fit, then you're, you set yourself up for better odds of success. But if you come with a prefixed model, you might be using the wrong tool for the job. I don't know, imagine someone comes in for medical care and the doctor just boom, <laughs> gets, uh, penicillin or something, or it's, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I do wonder, so I, I do feel sometimes like, um, uh, that person in the room that's uh, uh, everyone's making decisions or assumptions. And then uh, you're, you're the one saying, yeah, but well, not really. <laughs> uh, yeah. We can't really be sure, or have, have we validated this, or why on earth uh, do you think it's like that? And um, uh, but 
And I, I think I, I hear from uh, multiple Shiro people, they feel a bit the same, right? You're that yeah. person in the room that's, the, well, not necessarily negative Nancy, but <laughs> uh, you're the one um, um, uh, being critical about all those uh, things. And that's basically what you're saying, right? That that's, uh, the, the more uh, experience you have in this, the more <laughs> the more uncertain actually uh, you become. It's, it's, it's quite a humbling experience to uh, see uh, all your predictions fail all the time and, and uh, do these experiments over and over and uh, being confronted with uh, uh, being wrong. So <laughs> what would be your advice for uh, zero people uh, in, in handling this? How, how do you approach this um, um, to, to not be seen as the negative Nancy uh, or, or feel like a negative Nancy and, and, and um, um, be more, I mean, maybe more productive or more uh, contributing to these uh, situations? I, I love that question. And I have never, um, I, I didn't expect you to ask that. And it's a wonderful one because that's actually the reality of what most people who work in any sort of like applied psychology, whether it's more informal or more formal, you're going to face that once you're working with other people, right? You're asking for actual evidence. And then when you put forward, you know, evidence-based uh, design conventions and strategies, now you have the challenge of getting other people on board. And, you know, maybe I could start off with a bit of skepticism about uh, human nature. So I think it's generally human nature to go through <laughs> conspiracy theories and utter nonsense and high status pride. Um, or oh, sorry, high status backed uh, arguments. Uh, so that means the highest paid person's opinion will generally outrank, even if what they say is of no merit. And whoever calls out the emperor for having no clothing, if they're low level in an institution, um, if it's a healthy institution, uh, you know, maybe they'll be listened to. Uh, in many cases, they'll be ignored. And in an unhealthy organization, you could get turned on for that. So. So it's always risky when you want to stand up for uh, what you believe is right in the situation. Yeah. Um, and maybe I could add one thing. So, um, you know, I now have the credentials, right? You know, got the, the PhD and the long career and, you know, the big clients and all that. But I, I started in the trenches uh, working my way up. And I still, you know, I sometimes, like I work at a higher level, but I still have to, you know, deal with the same things, right? And I, it, I get... People trust me more because I, you know, spent my years and I can, you know, normally rationalize my uh, arguments for things um, and explain them in a calm way that people understand. So, but I, I paid my dues uh, when I was younger. I had a lot of all my ideas rejected. When I worked in the United Nations, I actually did a television commercial with Kofi Annan, who had just won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, right? And I was the one. Uh, ultimately overseeing a TV commercial we put out. And my boss did not want me to pilot test it. And I was like, we're putting out a TV commercial where the United Nations, this thing is going to get played, right? We should maybe <laughs> test it. And my boss was hostile. He was against it. He was like, BS and just, you know, whatever, get it out. I was like, so, so me and my friends came up with this crazy idea and because we're the UN and we're doing this uh, public service announcement commercial that was going to go around the world. Uh, we translated into like, you know, it was like English, Spanish, French, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian, because, you know, we're the UN, those are the official languages. Um, I'm not allowed to pilot test it. We didn't know some of the creative in it. We didn't know how we do. So, so me and my, my colleagues, we came up with this scheme to uh, run a secret uh, lunch 
session where we, we got people who represented all the cultures of the world. So we got some of our colleagues from Latin America, some North Americans, some Europeans, Africans, Asians, right? We tried to be representative. So I created a representative, like a cluster sample focus group. And then we did a secret lunch pilot test on, on this. <laughs> to this day, I got, it was it was the funniest thing. So I, I started behavioral science like early, like I started in 1997, right? So this is, Pretty early, um, and I was using tech then, so I had I was undercover. Like now, now there's an appetite, but I actually operated in hostile environments where I, you know, I I could come out on my performance evaluation for having dared, you know, done pilot testing <laughs> and validation of creative. So this is totally so 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 basically basically the advice for for uh, for zeros that find themselves in this situation is one uh, build build on your authority and uh, two uh, build a secret life where you can do tests that no one knows about which you can still <laughs> that that's your advice basically <laughs> build a second life yeah that that's more for the hostile environment there's a I started like twenty. Years ago, right now, there's a culture. So, so by by today's standards, uh, yeah. Let, let me give like a more updated version. So, so for it, it, first of all, it depends on your background, right? Because um, like it's easier for me because you know I spent my most of my career in this area, so I I know the arguments and, and you know and it's hard to pull the wool over my eyes, right? Um, if I think someone's being unfair and manipulative, you know, I'll see through it very quickly. But assuming everyone's sincere and straightforward, um, what the best thing to do is to, first of all, study your subject as seriously as possible to, you know, obviously know your situations. Because the last thing you want to do is to get into a conflict with someone where you get to an arguing spat. Um, okay, my biggest advantage, and this is a very weird one, if, if, so, if it's something I think many people should aspire to. Yeah, I, I know, Greta, you have a really strong background in, in behavioral science, and you can probably do this. So um, I often spot people's assumptions because I do a lot of training, and I work with a lot of people hands-on. So I, I work with UX designers, uh, graphic designers, like developers, and I know when they don't understand a key lesson in psychology, right? And I'm like, oh, this person, didn't, they never learned Gestalt. Okay, I'll, I'll teach them. So they're arguing with me and they have a point of view because they don't, I know they have, they don't understand basic gestalt design principles, right? And so I could say, you know, uh, you know, I, I think that this project, you know, could benefit from gestalt and, and I'll try and educate them and show them. And then I'll sort of frame it saying, hey, maybe we could turn this into a learning experience. And then you could come back to me with your creative, but try it, try and get these, you know, proximity principles and a few other gestalt principles in and see what does. And now instead of, you know, this being a standoff, I'm helping someone with their career and their skills. So that's pretty much a win-win. Now in the future, I have addressed a problem. Um, I, I, I often turn things into games like that. So also like a CRO person I'm with, uh, normally CRO people are good, but you know, they tend to know the high level stuff, not, not the details. And I find most people, if, if it's a legitimate, you know, um, if, if they legitimately don't agree because they don't know something, um, uh, but there's like learning involved, they're often like for it. Um, the other thing is turning testing into a game. I, I like to have fun. So you can see probably where I'm now and how I <laughs> to do secret pilot. <laughs> 
testing. Um, so I actually, I'll ask people what their theories are. And sometimes I'll even give them a few principles to play with and say, hey, how, 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 would, you, how would you do the creative for this, right? So uh, let's say we use a social norm and something called the efficacy message, so a confidence boosting message. We say, you know what? We think that you know we're missing a social norm and an efficacy message from this. Does anyone have any good creative? And actually, I try not to come up with the creative. I just give them the strategies. And I find a lot of creative people they love that. It's a bit like a game for them. Um, they're learning, and then and then what happens is now your A/B testing is now like, hey, all right, let's crack it open and see who won or something. I don't know. That's so much. Yeah. Want to have fun? Uh, I've lost. Yeah. I have lost a CRO wars or, or yeah, with uh, one person once. It was a senior developer who kicked my butt on a logo design concept. So, and you know, and then he and then he's like, glouting, uh, loser. <laughs> You're good. Uh, other is also education and creating a culture. And then you, if you do things right, you don't. Don't be that person who's in the room being, trying to stand up. Uh, change your battlefield months in advance. That's probably the easiest way to do it. So, yeah. But as, as, have you ever uh, considered a, a career in uh, in in, uh, uh, in games in gaming? No, I, I'm not a big game I have a colleague, Dr. Shadros, who's a, a gamification and education specialist. He he's, he plays like our World of Warcraft night. I went cold turkey at I think about the age of I think I was 27 with StarCraft. I said that was it. I will never play this again. This is crack. Right? I don't think it was crack at the time, but it was like horribly addictive. And 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 that's it. So I've avoided games. So. Probably not my thing. Will this work? Hmm, maybe not. Isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? With VWO, create and A-B test different variations of your website to continuously discover the best performing versions that improve conversions. Stop guessing. Start A-B testing with VWO today. We just spoke about those uh, those principles, the, the cognitive biases, uh, the enormous list that uh, we can find on uh, Wikipedia. Um, let, let's zoom in on that. Uh, so, um, what what is this list, and, and what's well? Let, let's uh, uh, if if you can tell us what's wrong with it. <laughs> what is what is a, maybe let, let's back it up uh, a bit. So, what is a behavioral change principle to start with? Yeah. So so before I um, go out and you know it's like. You know why, or maybe you know why. How will Brian rationalize trashing the orthodoxy here? Right, we're being a bit iconoclastic <laughs> here because I'm about to tear down something that a lot of people hold to be true. So yeah, and that's a wonderful question. So what's a behavioral change principle? And so it gets, you know, it starts there. So so a lot of people, um, like say say we take that giant wheel that's been floating around with all these cognitive biases, right? And you pick one of them, like. Uh, or you take any of Cialdini's behavior change principles, right? Like, um, you can ask someone, well, why do you even believe that's true? Like, is it real? Um, is loss aversion real? Is it true that in all situations that humans fear loss more than they desire a gain? Is that um, been mathematically proven? 
is the um, principle of reciprocity. Is that you know always true or not true? And we you could challenge these. Now the problem is that um, once you get into behavioral science, um, it's like entering a bureaucracy, and the rules get more and more and more dense, and then the distinctions get deeper and deeper. And you know you go from a taxonomy of six behavior change principles, and now you're at 200 behavior change principles. And when you get down to the 200 principles, it's like, oh, this principle is a combination of that, and it's like spun in this way, and you know. Uh, so you start splitting hairs at some point. So, so, so where do these actual behavior change principles come from? And, the, and then let me answer that, and then we could go back to the giant shopping list that people throw around as almost like magic solutions for how to change behavior. Yeah. So, so, and there's also there's a little bit of politics in here as well. Uh, so maybe I could throw that in. So. One of the requirements for getting a PhD and one of the requirements for surviving something called publish or perish is <laughs> recognition. Um, yep. So you have to be recognized for your work. And so academics are under pressure to have a new discovery, right? So, so oh, I found a new behavior change principle. Oh, I found a new cognitive bias, right? You know, I, you know, I found this. No one knew about it, but I, I found it. So the easy pickings are gone so like um self-efficacy say that was a self-efficacy was not in a, uh, a number of early behavior change models you know that was like later added and and asian later ad, added that when like his transition from theory of uh, reason action to the planned behavior was actually it was a patch-up job adding social norms uh, i believe it was social norms and self-efficacy or uh, I think, or maybe it was just self-efficacy that was added to the mix. But basically, it was like, oh, crap, I, uh, I forgot that principle, So, and it proved to be good. So a new principle had come out of nowhere, and it was going to be so highly correlated with behavioral outcomes that people were like, oh, crap, I got to add that in. My model sucks. And uh, I add that in, and now we get better predictive uh, patterns on the uh, effectiveness of our model. So, so so there's this competition and there's new principles and stuff so so the principles have come from old um the original old principles you'll find in the work of aristotle that are actually quite uh, popular in the old works of rhetoric uh, of persuasion principles and actually many of the cognitive biases you'll find in the ancient greek writings on the informal fallacies so these are irrational argumentation tactics um that are yeah. co they're cognitive biases so that means there are ways of getting someone to change through a uh, an intellectual type of misunderstanding, as opposed to say uh, a social normative way of getting someone to change, which will be through a social emotional pressure versus a, another type of mechanism that drives a behavior change principle. So, so scientists um, have to come up with these psychological models. Now, most of the behavior change principles are psychological based, and so. Um, maybe I could do something that um, Jordan Peterson did, if, if this is okay. Explains uh, factor analysis, if this is not too much. So it's like, how do psychologists actually distill what an actual behavior change principle is? Because not a lot of people even know where yeah. it comes from. So, so let me explain one thing technical, because I, I could call anything a behavior change principle, right? Anything I like, right? I, I could say, I don't know, making someone stare at you for five seconds 
uh, causes them to like you. Or if I touch someone, it will cause them to trust me a little bit more. Right? I, can, I can say anything I like, but now I got to measure that. So a lot of the behavior change principles we know come from psychological models uh, where behavioral scientists might make a survey question. And they uh, will come up with different things that they call a construct. So, so say a social norm, um, which is a popular one we all know, and trust in the source of a message might be another principle. And, uh, you know, that you we can name anyone. And anticipation of the outcome could be, you know, yet the third. We, we could just start inventing these. So I could, I could build a statistical model and then run it through something called factor analysis and then correlate that to whether people did the behavior or not. And then based on that, I'll start figuring out, oh, are some of these principles correlated with behavioral outcomes or are they just different ways of saying the exact same thing? Because what factor analysis does that's brilliant is it clusters similar things together. So what factor analysis does is it lets us cut through the nonsense. So, so there were there are behavioral, finally, there are behavioral economics researchers who have gone through and said, look, these shopping lists of 100 principles is complete and utter nonsense. They did factor analysis. You know, you know what their principle list come out to? It's like eight. Eight. Cialdini will like that. Yeah. <laughs> just, just eight. It's, it's. You can, you can write another book. He got to six plus plus one. So yeah. that's 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 basically next Cialdini's next book. <laughs> yeah, and it also depends on how well you frame them. So if you frame the principles as broad things, factor analysis will pull all the sub techniques into each other. So yeah, so you'll have the sub principles and the, the hair splitting tactics and you need to know those right that's just part of getting better in applied behavioral science um, yeah. but the factor also show you know what they're just a variation of the same old thing and, and, and eight is not the actual number i, I have to go back and, and uh, look at the actual number from the paper but it was i think it was about it was somewhere in that number also behavioral science yeah. in the uk um they reduced i think about 120 uh, behavioral science principles, and this was through consensus to around 20. And I think if yeah. it was a factor analysis, it probably would have gone down even more. That, that, that sounds much more manageable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, do, don't you, uh, uh, so don't you think it's, it's uh, also because of the, the, the people that then see those principles, they assume, okay, this is, uh, this is what works and it works all the time. You said, you said okay, this is uh, a principle. I found this, uh, this is gonna, I'm gonna work everywhere yeah. and then we can apply it everywhere. But that, that's, that's also an assumption that the person makes that's, that's reading that. That's not often uh, necessarily what the researcher intended, right? Uh, they just did a research and usually, uh, and from reading all those research papers, my experience is that A worked slightly better than B, <laughs> but never, uh, never always or everywhere. Or that's that's and that's usually not the what the research in, uh, researcher's intention is. But that's that's how it's popularized and then <laughs> gets into a list. Yeah, that's part of the absurd uh, distortion that that happens when. Uh, knowledge goes from the scientific community into industry and between that are the gurus who distort like that's where you like you know bj fogg um his work uh, ultimately um finally published and actually i saw he just got a list he's like new york times bestseller and like and i think like amazon he's doing very well but but his work 
um, turned into something called tiny habits about very small changes. But look how BJ Fogg's work got, got spun into absurd conspiracy theories called hooked. Like you can addict people. It's like the actual academic called it tiny habits, not hooked, not addicted. <laughs> and in my doctorate, I spent two years looking at all the meta-analyses and the big reviews of these behavior change principles and behaviorism was so low on the list. It's a requirement as a minimum for communications, but its effects are very small. And so tiny habits got spun into getting people hooked and addicted. And then, and then people believe <laughs> this and now uh, a very small principle that came from a small area of research is something like, like you said, people now start applying it to everything as if it's gonna have stellar effects across the board, wherever you go. And that is utter insanity. Yesterday's brainstorm was so good. I really liked Steph's idea of running that test on the call to action buttons. Making them orange will really make them stand out, don't you think? Yeah, right. Do you want to design real A-B test winners and achieve enormous conversion uplift? Then stop brainstorming and take a scientific approach. If you can read Dutch, follow the steps in Online Influence, the bestseller on managementbook.nl. Or enroll in the author's course and become an expert in applying proven behavioral science yourself. Go to onlineinfluence.com for more information and free downloads. Those eight or those 20 that they boiled, boiled everything down to, uh, these still have their, um, the, they, they apply in, in certain situations and, and not everywhere, right? They're still not universal uh, apply them everywhere principles. Yeah, they're, most of the behavioral science principles are context dependent. And what people also don't know is that when you actually, well, you know, you, you'll know this by a lot of people who are more uh, lay and practitioner level in, in the use of these principles they don't know is that um, in every scientific paper, there's something called the limitation section. And the limitation section actually says how generalizable that knowledge is. And what academics do is they limit um, the heck out of almost everything they write. They'll say that, you know, this nudge strategy worked with middle-aged women in suburban Nebraska um, in December of this year, right? And it's like, that's the population. And now you're like, you're gonna get everyone hooked or something, right? And, and the distortions are, are incredible. So, but, but there are some principles that are more universal that do work time and time again. And the broad frameworks tend to latch in onto those very broad principles. And I think those you'll mainly find um, explained by our cognitive uh, processes and our emotional systems. And some very, very sort of uh, rock um, uh, underlaying factors that drive human behavior. Um, and those tend to be a bit more generalizable. But yeah, a lot of the principles get spun to the point of absurdity. And I, I, have, to deal, I have to deal with that in my training. I have to do a lot of debunking and it's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I the impact is the other area of distortion. So not only is it generalizable to all humans, right? Um, but the, so a lot of these papers will say this only impacted, this had like about, normally it's not published as a percentage, but let's just call it a percentage because that's what many people understand, right? So let's yeah. say this improved outcomes by 10% or something, right? 
once people figure out the principle that approved outcomes by 10%, once the gurus misinterpret the science and start misleading the public, what they're going to do is going to treat it as like 100%. It's like, it works all the time. It's like, what? I see that constantly. And then, and the people, and then something that was like a marginal improvement is now like a, a massive, like transformative strategy. And you're just like, um, where, where did that come from? So that, yeah. so there, it's not just, it, there's a lot of distortion. It's not just the generalizability problem. Yeah, I think that's a, a problem a lot of zero uh, people encounter when they when they start their career or start at a new job, and if if the zero rule zero uh, role at the company is, is fairly new, then a lot of people uh, the, the people that hired you uh, or the team you you come in, uh, they they have those assumptions right. They they're at the beginning, at the Dunning Kruger <laughs> chart, uh, where they may have heard some of those principles and and assume that oh these these are all true. Uh, and that that's something you need to uh, an, an internal battle that you uh, might encounter saying okay but this it actually doesn't work like that unfortunately uh, there are a lot of ways it doesn't work we don't know if it's going to work uh, on our side and we need to do basically we need to do a lot of research and validation uh, to figure it out what what actually works uh, what works for us uh, or not yeah that's like a very good point like if actually, if you're call if if you're more deep into like applying psychology and and some of your colleagues are on board, um, you know sometimes a little bit of knowledge is a bad thing. But I, I think normally most people um, it's not a problem at all, and it's in fact a good thing because uh, what you can often do is say, okay, let's go with the social norm, right? Actually, I don't like using the word social proof, and it's fine. You can use it. It's just um, I I'll, I'll call it a social norm because I actually did a study where we split um, different types of social influence. Um, uh, have been proven to impact behavior, and we actually use um, we actually couldn't find social proof as a distinct uh, principle separate from a social norm. Right? I, I, I did a statistical study and we published this in the, in the lit. Um, but so so in fact, social proof or social norms will have many subcomponents. So um, underneath a social norm uh, could be something called social facilitation where you're making letting people feel they're being watched by other people you can have social learning principles where you're educating people by having them watch other people do things um, there's obviously the social norm itself and also within social norms there's multiple um, subcategories of how you would implement the norm and that's where the hair splitting goes because you need to understand those so so what I sometimes would do with people is I say okay let's go with the social norm um, uh, you know, do we want to do it like this or that style? Does anyone want to do some research on different ways of implementing it? Because people might not know the names for all the different types of social psych principles and social influence principles, but as they play with different tactics that work, they'll actually be playing on actually sometimes very different principles of social influence, thinking that they're implementing a social norm or social proof, but they're actually implementing a completely different um, social psychological principle. And I'm okay, because um, you could do well with tactics, um, just as long as they're open and they're testing, I figure that the testing will will point you in the right direction. Your, your users will pretty much tell you. So, uh, you know, I, I, I will get blue in my face, say, oh, that's, you know, you're using this principle, not that. And, so I, I, I could let it go. Um, 
And then and in the worst case scenario, sometimes for diplomatic reasons, I will accept uh, something that I'm really against. And I'll say, you know, if you're really morally against it, sometimes you have to say, I'm against this. I am not accountable. Uh, if you want to go forward, I'll give you all the glory. Um, that's like really bad. That's a, that's a total conflict. And it, it very rarely happens. A few times in my career has come to that. But but normally it's like, okay, let's let's just test it. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong as well. Because, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I, I could, I'm a big, you know, I'm an established expert in my area, but I make mistakes all the time. And like the, the users are the ultimate judge. So I'll, you know, I'll let them overrule my judgment any day. So, so when you when do you know uh, when to uh, when you're applying if you're applying the right principle and uh, if you're uh, applying the right uh, strategy for the for the challenges? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, maybe I could talk about uh, a collaboration I did with a good friend of mine, Michael Agard, who's a um, he's yeah. a you know fairly prominent conversion optimization specialist. He's a huge Daniel Kahneman fan, and we we met like many years ago and we've been good friends ever since um yeah sorry i have to say and you build a course together right yeah we did a course in conversion xl together we had talked about doing a course and then uh, uh pep uh, approached me and then i wrote to mike and said hey remember we said do a course do you want to you want to collaborate and then so we did a great course but um and maybe one last thing um i we i knew we were destined to be good friends because uh, he had a, a tattoo on his arm that said, hey, ho, I think it's, hey, ho, let's go. And I body <laughs> to the Ramones when I was younger. So we're, we're on good footing. Yeah, so you guys uh, work together on the on the course for for CXL. Uh, you uh, more for the, from the theoretical background and Michael more from the practical uh, let's uh, uh, run, run a lot of tests uh, background, right? Yes, and that's exactly it. So, and so I wanted to maybe I, I'll tell you this story because um, there's two ways of approaching it. So, how do you know what is the right principle for the job? So, so what's awesome about Michael is you know he spent ten years split testing before he got into psychology at all. Everything he knew was it's amazing. It's from brute force, and Michael is incredibly. It's uncanny how he has such a natural sense for what works, right? And that's, so he, he's got hyper tactical knowledge. And he told me like at one point, he's like, I just know you'd have to put all these trust things next to the button. I don't know why. And, you know, I know that you have to color it like this, right? And it was very, he has like this incredible tactical knowledge. So he could tell you where you put every UI element on the page to get better conversion. And, and after 10 years of split testing, he got incredibly good at that. Now, I, I came at things a little differently. Um, you know, I, I started hands-on, so I was building, and, um, and I always I always worked in measurement, but I was not an early adopter of A-B testing tools. I think I started on those a few years in, um, I mean, after they were exploding, right? So even before people used the word CRL, I think, or, you know, I was there just when it was taking off, but, but the true CRO experts, I don't even think CRO, like CRO is not really a, a thing for for many years. Just like UX wasn't even a thing, interactive design wasn't a thing, digital, like all the all the professions we have, we were using for well over a decade before they even had formal names. So so 
I mean, CRO is also basically doing user research using qualitative and quantitative data, combining that and, and doing validation. So in that sense, it's existed for a very long time, but somehow CRO is very much linked to, to doing it uh, on a website, of course. Uh, but I mean, those principles are not new. Yeah, yeah, they've been around for so long. Uh, um, and so, so Michael went at it tactically. And me, you know, I went through, I, I always did a lot of measurement and hands-on work, but I, you know, I went deep into it. I did like a PhD and in my PhD, I was analyzing, you know, the principles uh, that are used in behavior change taxonomies and used in technology. So after several years, I could look at any page and tell you the main principles that are being applied and I could generally guess how well a, a product was doing because and this is way before anyone was doing any work in psychology. So, so when I started, most people thought I was insane for, for looking at psychology on the web. So who would do that? <laughs> right? That's stupid. But so, so I had this incredible knowledge. I spent years analyzing the psychological principles. I published in the scientific literature and like some prominent health behavior change journals, did a full statistical meta-analysis. That's like pretty solid on full tactical analysis. So, so I could look at something and, and approach it from a theoretical um, and framework perspective. Michael could approach it from a tactical perspective. But, you know, we're not that radical because obviously I do a lot of measurement and I also would know things based on you know, what works in practical applications and, and seeing uh, impact metrics. So, so it's not like I'm a pure Ivy Tower academic. And Michael got into psychology later on and he started uh, like consuming everything with an incredible appetite. And he became um, a very deep expert into uh, Daniel Kahneman's approach and concepts from behavioral economics, which I could say Michael probably knows behavioral economics principles deeper than anyone I know. Like he, so, so we both came at it, but we have these strengths and I think we recognize them. We're also musicians, so we never did a gig together, but I think we'd probably perform well on stage. Um, so there's two ways to approach it. What is the right principle for a job? So this comes down to something called fit and you might know it from having a lot of tactical knowledge. So that tactical knowledge, if, you, if you've worked in an industry or in an area and you've been working with clients and customers for many years, you'll tend to know what works just from brute force trial and error. You'll eventually figure it yeah. out. Basically, you succeed or you fail. And if you're still standing, you're doing something right. So you, you, you figured it out through brute force and you know what works. Now, the problem with that knowledge is it normally doesn't translate well. So you can't you can't go to a neighboring application. So say someone who's um, optimizing insurance landing pages, you know, can can they now go to a nonprofit and optimize a donation page? Right. Probably not. Or, you know, a lot of things will carry over, but there's a lot of tactical things that will work. And now let's look at things from a purely theoretical perspective. So so I have these very broad frameworks and I could look at almost anything in any industry and I could pretty much guess, okay, they're using this. I see how they're tied up. I could go into the industry and I could see, okay, most people in this industry are making this and that. I could rattle off almost instantly all the general principles and I could reverse engineer the psychological strategies used by entire industries insanely fast because that's what I specialize in. That's just my shtick. I spent a lot of time doing it. And so, so between the two, you can sort of get a sense of what works. Right. Um, 
And figuring out the, what is the right principle for any challenge and context is something you call fit. So what's the right fitting principle? And you build that up through years of experience. So unfortunately, there is not an off the shelf answer to that. So years of experience will help you to understand that. The um, stopping with the mindless application of behavioral science principles is a good way to get better at it and going with what is the behavioral science framework that's most appropriate to my area of work. Now, that means you have to get into theory and a lot of people don't like that. They love their magic shopping list of the 10 psychological principles that will hook your users, <laughs> right? And, and all that nonsense there. They, so it will require an investment. And I, you know, I, I try and help my students. I give them the frameworks and I help them create the judgment. Some people don't want that. I know, I know they want the magic solution that works 100% in all situations for all humans. Unfortunately, it doesn't, doesn't work. I don't, if, if you could give it to me, I, I'll take it. Um, so it comes down to uh, like playing with the models. Um, reverse engineering an industry is a good start. So uh, you could use some uh, sneaky tools, use some spy technology. So I don't know, use like SpyFu or SEMrush. Try and figure out who's spending money and where the competition is and where there's landing pages. You might not know the conversion metrics, right? You could use some uh, scouting tools. Try and find the landing pages in the industry where you know there's something going on. You, you know that the needle is tipping and that there's something in there. You do a review of those. Don't steal a single idea because that's theft. But figure out the principles and then go back um, to the drawing board and use that to do things in a way based on your own user research. But, but never ever copy principles uh, verbatim because what works in one context can fail in another. So it's, it's insanely dangerous. And my also advice is never steal tactics because tactics are very dangerous. Like, like I see, yeah. I see that. When I, I mean, when I worked as a, on, the, on the agency side, when I worked on the agency side, it, uh, when something worked at one client, we often uh, tried copying that over to other clients. Um, it, it usually didn't work well. <laughs> Yeah, you can get backfires very easily from that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, um, so when you teach, uh, obviously, so when, when you get uh, an, a fresh batch of, uh, batch of uh, uh, students, what are the most common, uh, I guess, misconceptions or the most prevalent misconceptions that you <laughs> that you need to start debunking uh, right away? Oh, yeah, there's a few. So uh, one thing I, I now do more, more uh, and more of is, like I, I tell people, look, um, applied behavioral science is a research heavy process, right? So that means, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot to learn um, and, it is, and we're gonna implement it in a very user-centered and user-driven approach. So, so I, I try and back up. Uh, I, I, you know, every guru and expert will tell you, you know, satisfy your users. I, I'm no different, I guess, standard. So I try and set the expectation <laughs> that Look, I, I'm not going to give you a magic set of principles that um, work in all cases. Um, another, you know, so another misconception is that there are these magic shopping lists uh, of what works in all cases for, for all people. And it's like, so I try and set the expectation that it requires a bit more of a flexible approach and requires you to shop around. Um, one thing that I deal with, so I like I train everyone from people who are absolute beginners to like sort of like you know world elite 
designers and also I train a lot of behavioral science and, and behavioral science teams just because for a behavioral science team, you know, I'll be, I'll be teaching my peers, but they recognize I'm their peer who specialize in digital. And so I have, you know, a very deep knowledge only, in, you know, in my, in my niche. Um, and I'll even tell those, some of the more experienced people said, I'm going to tell you a lot of things you already know, but I'm just going to show you how they apply, you know, in, in a medium that you haven't worked in. And, and that's important because there's no guarantee. So, so one is that uh, setting that expectation uh, that you're going to have to um, put in some effort yeah. to uh, learn things. And uh, there's maybe, uh, and actually there's one maybe other thing, and it, it's something that's sort of changed in me quite a lot. And that's, um, we're talking about behavior change principles. So, you know, I, I ended up segmenting my course into behavioral science and neuroscience. Um, I call my my second course emotional design, but that's it's it's neuroscience uh, because um, the science of emotions is neuroscience, right? It's, it's, I mean, neuroscience gives us more understanding of emotions than psychology does, and I know that might sound funny to people, but neuroscience is where you actually chop open the nervous system and you take a look at what's going on a bit more literally, and so we have a better understanding of emotions. So it's like don't don't do this at home, by the way. Yes. Don't don't chop don't chop up your nervous system. Don't do that. And if you have neurotech, like here I have my uh, my uh, visual cortex EG reader <laughs> and other um, things. But yeah, so but otherwise, don't chop open your brain and measure your emotion. No. Um, yeah, actually, mine is taking your pulse is an easy way to do it. Um, but the other thing is to set the expectations that emotion-based design and more and applied psychology or behavioral science is, is more dogmatic. So I try to tell people that actually behavioral science is really easy. It's more like just learning a bunch of principles that fit into these models and then shopping around for the best fitting one. And then it's actually a fun and creative act. And that's the other thing. Cause I also, I did improv for a little bit of time. And so, people don't realize how fun it is to apply behavioral science. And I train all these, sorry, earlier I mentioned I train people from beginners to like elite designers. I also train public health officials and prominent behavioral scientists in public health and they're shell-shocked. These people have been wounded by very stiff 500 page behavior change books. And I took, show them how to pick the principles and models. But then what I do next is a crazy thing. At, no one, most people don't even know about. We play a game of improv at that point, and we have fun, and we do a creative process, and that the science and creativity go so well together. And that, I mean, I don't just say this dogmatically. People crack up laughing in my class. We have so much fun. These are the best moments when we do that handover from the the hard analysis and research, and then we're getting creative. If you do it right, it's awesome. So that's. That's the last expectation that has to be cracked. It's not stiff. It's fun. Definitely something that zeros can copy. I think uh, set the expectations right when you start and have fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. 
let's do that uh brian um uh, final question for you um when you look at uh, i mean uh, yeah when, when you look at uh, zero the, the profession the people working in that um uh, compared with with uh, uh what you do what's the insight that that you have that you think that that zeros uh, haven't caught up on yet what, what, what should they um invest more time in well, yeah so um well the heart of everything I do, and I just keep going more and more and more, is going back to actually one of Aristotle's principles. And, you know, the, the whole concept of um, humans are driven by their intellect, emotion, and lizard brain. Um, so there's uh, something more to that. So that's actually just a, that's similar to Aristotle's concept, that you appeal to the intellect, to the emotions, but then it's the credibility of the speaker. And so I think... Forming trust with the brand is important. So what a lot of people don't know is that humans interact with brands similar to how they interact with other humans. And I know that might sound insane. There are now studies that show you can manipulate brand, um, uh, an interpretation of a brand and your emotional connection to a brand with a couple of spritzers of oxytocin spray up the nose. Um, and that social cognition, which is uh, manipulated through a couple of oxytocin spritzes, also impacts on user brand relationships. So um, in that having an emotional connection with an authentic, credible source behind the message is the main thing. So it's like authenticity. And I can't give any more advice on how to establish credibility than this. Be credible. Know your, know your stuff and act in the interest of people um, and be authentic. And I believe that will carry through and, and the rest uh, we're just throwing on top of that. And here's the other thing from all the studies I do, if you violate that credibility, this is what happens. You can do your own testing. I see it every time I test this. People, a well-designed website that fails the credibility and trust test can instantly evoke fear and anxiety and distrust. That is like fatal flaw. So so be authentic is the main thing. Be authentic. Yes. <laughs> Nice. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for for your time and uh, sharing all of uh, this uh, with us. Uh, what are you working on the next, uh, well, this this year, 2021? Yeah, so uh, I'm actually in a uh, retreat mode. So while COVID is still going on, um, I set myself a bunch of goals. So I actually, I, have, I, I pursue too many things at once. So I'm like, I have a line. So first I'm cleaning up my school. So I've been working hands-on implementing funnels do I, I actually i decided i'm going to rebuild it all myself i have contractors that work with me and it's a mess so i so the only way you know got to bite the bullet and then i i improve all of my technical skills so so that keeps me current so i'm on that i'm now finally writing a book on everything so my entire training system i'm putting into a book <laughs> a book on everything <laughs> yeah i feel i just want to get it out of the way um, and then actually, I'll tell you, and then next, I have a whole personality system, uh, which I use as the basis for making predictions on principles to use with different people. So it's a, a behavioral, uh, a personality system designed to measure people's uh, neurotransmitters and hormone levels, and then to correlate with the taxonomy of behavior change that I use. And I'm using that for AI technology. And if that's not enough, I started teaching myself C++. I put this one down. It's what I'm really passionate about. Um, 
what I really want to do, I don't think I'll have any time for this, but um, I'm very interested in MindLink uh, Neurotech and how we design um, how we design for human conscious perception of spatial relationships and sound and tactile experience. So going into the user experience, but in a way where I can transmit my experiences to another person. So I, I'm so interested in brain link technology, which is why I happen to have a visual cortex reader. Uh, with, and this is just part of it. I, I have a whole suite. I, I put it down like, Brian, stop this. You're insane. You're too distracted. Focus. So that's what I'm passionate about. But uh, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like like video games. I'll I'll get off that dopamine kick for now. Yeah. So so let me know know when the book is done. Then we can do a podcast on that. Ah. And after that, we can do another podcast on the Neuralink. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Uh, Brian, final question. Who should I ask uh, to come on the podcast? Oh, yeah. So I, uh, I just had a couple of friends um, who I know are good in the people. So my friend Agnes, uh, who I did some studies with, he's a good person to speak with. And he's now a professor in Paris. Um, he did his doctoral research on social psych, and I did a study with him. Um, so he's good to speak with if, say, you want to go to the, the nuance of just social psychology. Uh, and how it operates in technical environments. And he could give you a ton of examples on, on the, like basically if you want to say, okay, social proof is a, is a broad concept, um, but it's, if you want to go a level down into all the social influence that is correlated with it, right? It's going to be social norms, but here are all the other highly correlated social psych principles. So you can yeah. go to that. Um, one other person, David Shandros is a, a friend and a professor in gamification and education. So he could talk about gamification designs, but it, uh, for engagement, his stuff, um, I mean, a lot of his stuff, you could probably talk about LMSs. It might be a bit outside of conversion design. And, you know, Agnes's work is going to be a bit more of this also social change, right? So, so when you go to the academics, they tend to get a bit off page and more into the broader campaigns. So, those are two. Yeah, but like, like you said, it makes sense to have a, a theoretical uh, um, understanding of, of what what you're dealing with, and uh, get a sense of where where this where are these theories actually coming from, <laughs> how uh, and and to be critical on, uh, about them. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, we're way past our time. Thank you so much for uh, for educating us and uh, sharing all your experience with uh, with us. And definitely looking forward uh, to that book. And um, yeah, like I said, let, let me know when it comes out, then we can uh, promote it uh, under our uh, audience. For sure. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye bye. Bye now. And this concludes Season 3 episode 4 of the Shiro Cafe podcast with Brian Kugelman. Make sure to check out the show notes on the Shiro Cafe website. For the next episode, we will apply this science update in practice when we switch to the merchant side. When we talk with Abby Schoenberg, Director of Marketing at Fancy.com.